And if you open up your Bibles or, you know, get the sermon notes as we go through this, I would like for you to do something. This is going to be sort of an interactive date today. So take a look at Matthew chapter 23, 13 through 36, and go ahead and read it. But as you're reading it, there's two assignments that you have. This is, this is where you're going to have to do a little bit more work. First of all, underline everywhere where it says, woe to you. Okay, in those verses, just underline where it says, woe to you. But not only then underline it, at your tables, and don't talk about the weather, don't talk about the bears, don't talk about the cubs, don't talk about any of those things. Talk about what you would see as the opposite of that woe. So if it says, woe to you because you're a barrier to people coming to Christ, what would be the opposite of that? Okay? So take a few minutes, go through those verses, read them, underline whatever it is where it says, woe to you, and then at your tables discuss what you would see as the opposite.
First of all, how many woes to you did you come up with? Seven. Seven? Seven? Anybody come up with more than seven? Well, seven's a good number. We'll go with it. We'll go with seven. Okay. Think about those as we go through the scripture this morning. Uh, about those woes and continue to think what would be the opposite of those. Okay, the opposite of those woes. If somebody says, you know, woe to you for this, blessed are you because of this. You know, what would be the blessing side of the woes? Um, and after reading that, what do you think is the greatest uh, threat to a man or a woman today. Um, as I look at the news, and as I listen to people, um, yesterday I was hearing that you know the greatest threat right now is the burning of the Amazon forest because it covers 20% of our oxygen. Um, if you're a Democrat, you think the Republicans are the you know, the greatest threat. If you're a Republican, you think the Democrats are. If you're neither, you may think that the socialists are uh, or some other political party. Uncontrolled crime is our greatest threat or a police state that's going to be our greatest threat. But it's not an ecological disaster and it's not the burning of the Amazon forest. It's not a nuclear holocaust or the earth being getting hit by an asteroid, which they talk about every year. Um, and all of these things could lead to circumstances that we may not like. Some would even cause great uh, loss of human life. Um, but death is not man's greatest enemy, for that is only a transition. It's only a transition from one state of being to another state of being. But it's what will happen in eternity that is the most important. Where one spends eternity is what's most important. So from my perspective, the greatest threat that a person can face is that which will keep them from receiving God's gift of mercy, God's gift of grace, God's gift of life. Um, one of the reasons I love getting together, uh, whether it was at the Shooties or at the Joneses or at the Justices for our baptism baptisms, is because of life and to see people proclaiming their relationship with Jesus Christ, getting baptized and saying, you know, I can't control everything else that is going on around me. I can't control the ecological disasters. I can't control what's, you know, a, a forest fire in, in, you know, South America. But I can control is whether or not I surrender my life to Christ and allow that to be what's first and foremost importance. Um, and I think that's also why Jesus was so hard on the Pharisees and the scribes because they were focusing on everything but a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And two weeks ago, um, we examined Jesus' description of the characteristics of the false religions. 
and how they claim authority for themselves, or false religious leaders, how they claim authority for themselves, they make these hypocritical demands of, on everybody else, but they live a completely different way. They are loveless, uncaring, they make pretentious displays of their righteousness or their religiosity, but there's nothing inside. They are proud and arrogant. And we talked about how pride focuses on that. So as Jesus continues in his warnings to his people, um, you can just hear the emphasis on these false spiritual leaders. And he begins to address their false uh, religious leaders directly. So seven times Jesus says, Woe to you, scribe and Pharisees, hypocrites. Now, obviously there were a few that may not have been, um, because we also mentioned that you see it in Acts and you see it in other places where a Pharisee came to him and said, you know, what's, what's the truth? Um, but Jesus says, woe to you. And the word woe is used in several ways. Jesus uses it here is that of a judgment mixed with regret. So it's not just a judgment. He's saying, woe to you, because you're not getting it. And I regret the fact that everything that is true, everything that is right, everything that would benefit you, you are missing it. And I regret that you are missing it. There's an element of still compassion in it. It's a declaration of judgment against sinful men who will not turn from their ways, who will not repent, who will not receive Christ. And then Jesus calls them hypocrites. Outwardly and publicly, they were pretending to be one way, but inwardly and in private, not so much. Um, and the danger is, is that there isn't a person alive who isn't susceptible to that same behavior. There's something inside of us that wants to always look maybe just a little bit better than we really are. And so he's warning not only them, he's saying this is, this is dangerous for everybody. There's a tendency. And I've known people who will walk into church, I mean, they'll be, they're on the verge of divorce and they'll walk into church and how you do it? Great. Life is wonderful. Name it, claim it. We're great. Things couldn't be better. Um, people's lives are falling apart, but yet they'll come to church and they'll say, but I have to look good for everyone else. You know? And it's time that and Jesus said, no, you don't have to. We're gonna, God's going to impact us. It's because we can be honest uh, and when I say be honest, I, that doesn't mean we become a novel, but we at least acknowledge the reality that sometimes life isn't always perfect. And I need God's grace. I need God's guidance. I need the community of believers. I need fellowship. Um, it was a great... Uh, this, I, I have no idea where we're going to go today. Um, <laughs> There was a great message. We were, when we were on vacation, um, we listened to Tony Evans every day. And, well, not every day. We had five messages that we listened, or four messages. I forget how many. But 
I can only take so much because it's constantly screaming at me. But he is so good. You know, so go ahead and scream at me for an hour. I'll take it. Um, but he talked about when Lazarus was in the tomb. And he told, you know, Mary, move the stone. And she wouldn't move the stone. He says, you don't understand, Jesus. He's been dead for four days. If you open up, if you move that stone, there's going to be a stench that's going to, you know, it's going to be overwhelming. And, you know, and then Tony goes, well, you know, here's the creator of the universe getting a biology lesson from Mary and Martha. Um, but finally, he said, move the stone. And he, and he said, and he said, but the key word there is they moved the stone. It wasn't, they needed people. They needed a group. They needed a community. They needed people to help move the stone because they would not have been able to move it by themselves. And that's what the church is. I got a problem. I need a community to help me fix it. Well, then Jesus, then it said, Jesus called out Lazarus. Lazarus comes out, and, Jesus, and then it says, and he shuffled out. And then he tells them to unbind him. Because he's shuffling out because he's still in all of his garb, his funeral garb. And he said, and so again, it took people to help unravel him, unwrap him from his clothes. So it takes people not only to help it happen, but it takes people at the end to affirm it. That's what the church is about, a group, a community. Why the table hops? Why we try to get together? So when we go through difficulties, we don't go through these things alone. That there's people, and we have the freedom to say, you know what? I'm struggling with communication. I'm struggling with understanding. I'm struggling with loving. I'm struggling with forgiveness. I'm struggling with these things. And we hold on to, we say, yeah, but I, nobody cares. Or nobody will understand. Or nobody will help me. And you know what? It's true if you never open your mouth. But if you open your mouth, you might be surprised that somebody's there to help roll the stone away to help make a difference. That has nowhere here, anywhere where I'm talking. Um, anyway, so Jesus calls them hypocrites. Um, and in this passage, Jesus pronounces curses upon the, those religious leaders of his people who were hypocritical, who were outwardly holy, but who inwardly did not love God or did not love others. And as you look at these verses, you see a very important truth, um, and that is we need to appreciate that the truly loving thing to do is to proclaim truth to a person, not to pretend, and not to turn our eyes away from falsehood. Um, and I find it interesting how many times Christians are accused of not being loving by a society that doesn't want to hear truth. And so they, a society wants to be lied to, and so Christians are willing to go along with the lie in order to be perceived as loving by society instead of being truly loving by proclaiming truth to a person, but proclaiming that truth in a loving way. Um, and again, if you take a look at what's going on, 
This is a brutal attack on the most widely respected religious leaders in Israel at the time. If it'd be like, you take the, all the religious leaders that you've respected and their education, and then you have this itinerant preacher walks in and says, oh, by the way, they're all hypocrites. How would you initially respond to that? And that's basically what Jesus is doing. He's going to these people who have been taught to revere the Pharisees. They've been taught to revere the scribes. And Jesus says, oh, by the way, folks, they're all hypocrites. They're all hypocrites. But then he goes on to explain why. Um, so seven times he pronounces woes on the scribes of Pharisees. Seven times he calls them hypocrites. Four times he calls them blind. Once he calls them fools, and he calls them the offspring of vipers. Um, that was the one I always liked. Uh, Steve Green. Was it Steve? No, Keith Green. Keith Green. Um, and many of you would have no idea who Keith Green is. But he was a rock, a Christian rock artist from the 60s and 70s. He was killed in a plane accident, I believe. Um, but he was in concert one time with all these Christians, and they're all waving their hands, and they're praising, and they're singing. And he stops in the middle of that and looks at them and calls, you brood of vipers. That sort of silenced the whole audience. But that was just sort of his prophetic way of confronting what he believed was Christians not living as Jesus being Lord of their life, but just taking the blessing, but not really giving the credit to Christ. And so he calls them, he, here, he calls them a brood of, of vipers. But he's not just engaged in name calling. This is a calculated spiritual confrontation. And so what was Jesus doing? A couple of things. First of all, Jesus was showing God's people God's attitude towards hypocrisy. Um, and so, and that, that's just not acceptable. Jesus is saying, I want you to know what God thinks about the hypocrites, about hypocrisy. Don't be fooled. God is not mine. He knows what's in our heart. He knows what's going on. He sees he will judge. These people who are hypocrites can't fool him. They may fool us, but they'll never be able to fool Jesus. Secondly, Jesus is offering another general warning to these scribes and Pharisees. He's constantly warning them. It's not just an attack. He's saying, listen. Will you finally listen and understand that your behavior is not consistent with your heart? Get it right. We, you know, let Jesus be the center. Come and fall in love with God, fall in love with the scripture, and quit holding on to your tradition. Quit holding on to your image. Um, and then finally he is telling these things to the scribes and Pharisees because he wants the crowd to know. He wants his disciples to know that we are susceptible to the same thing. We are susceptible to the same dangers. Because Jesus wants people whose hearts are changed from the inside out. Um, that have been given over to him. And who love him with all their heart. With all their soul. With all their strength. And with all their mind.
Um, Jesus also knows that Jesus said, you know what? In all the religion, there's always going to be hypocrisy. But that doesn't take away the truth of God's word. I remember two weeks ago we talked about where Jesus said, yeah, go ahead and listen to what they say because what they say is true. Just don't follow their behavior because their behavior is not true. And so we have a tendency to just put it all in one package and if a person's behavior isn't consistent, we just throw it all out. And again, that's what our culture has done. Christians are hypocritical, they're this, they're that, so it's all no good. Instead of saying, no, people are people. People still are people. They're still in a transformation process. They're still being formed into the image of Christ. They are not you know, perfect as soon as they accept Christ. They're righteous, but there's a difference. And so they still, we still need to recognize that. Then we look at the catalog of sins that, the, that Jesus lists for them here. And I'm just going to go through these sort of quick. Uh, first in verse 13, he says, You keep people from the life which God with God. You refuse it yourselves by opposing the gospel message, and you prevent others from doing it also. Uh, the Pharisees and the scribes not only rejected Jesus themselves, they did their best to keep other people from embracing Jesus Christ and the gospel message. And Jesus says, woe to you because of this. And the reality is, is that there are many churches, there are many Christian leaders, there are many people today that also do the same thing. They prevent people from understanding the truth of God's word. Um, I can remember situations when, you know, I knew one person who said he went to his pastor, says, what do I need to do to become a Christian? He goes, oh, don't worry about it. You're here in the church. You are. And never any sense of, wait a second, isn't there more than this? No, as long as you're just coming to the church, you're, you're good. And I think a lot of people grew up with that. As long as you're going to church, you're good. And there's never any kind of a personal acknowledgement or recognition that Jesus Christ is my Lord, my Savior, died for my sins, forgave me of my sins, called me righteous. And it's because of a relationship not because of a church. And then in verse 14, we see Jesus say, you men, you practice your religion for personal gain. You look holy for the sake of gaining the confidence of God's people and then exploiting them. You look righteous, you look good, and you exploit others. And then in verse 15, he goes on to say, you make your converts into worse hypocrites than yourselves. And again, the Pharisees were evangelical in the fact that they wanted people to become like them. Uh, so, so don't get the idea that the Pharisees didn't care about conversion. They just cared about conversion to Christ. They didn't care about conversion to their way of living or where, their way of thinking. Uh, they wanted lots of people converted and they wanted to be just like them so they would listen to them. They had a power base, 
and the last thing they ever wanted to lose was their power base. And if anybody has a power base, the last thing they want to lose is their power base. And so they will do whatever they can to keep that. And so it says, Jesus says, you know what? You go out and you convert people and you make them twice as bad as you are. They pick up all of your worst tendencies. They are hypocritical. They too are legalistic. They are unbelieving. And yet they attempt to appear to be holy. They become partisans, not lovers of God. And so he condemns the Pharisees for this. And then in verses 16 through 22, he says, you make subtle distinctions in your teaching to God's people about what kind of oaths are binding and what kind of oaths are not. And so, you know, if you want to say this, it's okay. If you don't, you know, and you say this, it's okay. But one you keep and the other one you don't. And so a person's word means absolutely nothing. You know, they just provide opportunities to, to lie. Um, and he says, Woe to you, curse be you. May God's curses fall upon you to encourage God's people to be untruthful. Again, in verse 23 and 24, he says, You have majored on questionable minutia. Yes, the Old Testament says we should tithe on the produce. But you're going out into the herb garden and you're looking for the mint and the little patch of mint about being that big and this little patch of dill and this little patch of cumin. And you are saying, well, we must tithe that as well. So we take this one leaf off of this and we keep nine. And we take one leaf off of this and we keep nine. And he says, and you just ignore the most important things. You have, you have focused on the minutia, and instead you have misled this great group of people and you've, mis, you've missed the realities of faith. You have misled your followers as well. So in Micah 6, 8 says, what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? You've skipped that. Instead, you worry about whether a person has tithed their herb garden. And he says, and, he says, and that's what people do. They focus on the minutia. And you will hear people argue all the time over minutia. Instead of saying, but what does God say about life? What does God say about grace? What does God say about forgiveness? So, so don't just, but don't ignore justice and mercy and faithfulness, the central matters of the law. You have become sidetracked in minutia. In verse 25 and 26, he says, you appear to be holy, but in your heart of hearts, you're self-indulgent. You're hard on everybody else, but you're soft on yourself. You allow yourself all manners of flexibility, and you will be harsh on others. Now, I, I've told you many times that I don't like preparing a sermon. And the reason I don't like preparing a sermon is because I am over... All through the week, I'm dealing with these verses. 
And I realize that God is not saying these to those people. He's saying them to this person. And, you know, when it's always those people, it's easy. And if I preach thinking it was all, it's always about you guys, you guys are doing all these things wrong, it would be easy. But I don't. It, it always comes back to me. And so I started thinking about this verse. You're hard on everybody else, but you're soft on yourself. You allow yourself all manner of flexibility and you will be harsh on others. And I just thought to myself, when somebody else's sin or behavior bothers me more than my own, I'm in trouble. And the problem is, that happens on a pretty regular basis. <laughs> so woe to you, Andy, for being harsh on everybody else, but flexible on yourself. I think right now. <laughs> I know. Now I'm messing. <laughs> I'm glad we can laugh about our sin. Um, um, just mine. Thank you, Dan. <laughs> you know, there's a, there's a table in the back. That you, when you're more, Aggie, you can sit up here in the front. But then, um, then verse 27 and 28, you appear to be holy, but in your heart of hearts, you're hypocritical and you're lawless. You proclaim with your lips that you love the law, but in your life you don't. Once again, we say we love God's word, we love it, but when it says, now do this, we go, well, I love the other part. I love the part where it says I'm forgiven, I love the part where it says grace, I love the part where it says this, but you say when I have to serve others, when I have to care for others, when I have to tithe, when I have to do these things, I don't love that part of the law that much. And so we... So he said, you know, we need to be consistent. And then verse 29 through 33. You act as though you honor God's messengers, but in fact you hate God's messengers because you hate God's message. If you don't embrace God's message, you can't embrace the messenger. If you can't embrace God's word, you can't embrace the author of the word. There's a point where you just have to say there's an inconsistency here in my head. So, the reason I wanted you to think about the opposite. It's easy to say, God, <clears throat> don't make me judgmental. God, don't make me worry about other people's sins more than mine. God, don't make me a barrier to people coming to Christ. A better way of doing it is saying, what are the woes, and then what are the opposites? God, make me a person of my word. Make me a lover of your word. Make me a lover of people to such a degree that I would never want to be a barrier to letting for, for them coming to you in a personal relationship with Christ. Help me be committed to my walk, that I can act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with you. Help me to serve you, but also serve others. And then the last thing we see in verse 34. So that's a, that'd be the challenge. 
how do I pray these things so that I'm not guilty of the woes? Instead of just focusing on the woes, focus on the opposite and pray that. And then the last thing in verse 34 through 36, Jesus makes an incredibly gracious response, even though it, it is very harsh. It makes it clear that those who reject the gospel message, those who reject God, the gospel messengers, do it at their own eternal peril. Because everybody's going to spend someplace in eternity. They said, it's, it's, you know, here it is. Here it is. And so Jesus' response to all the wickedness of the scribes and the Pharisees, he says this, I'm going to send you prophets. I'm going to send you wise men. I'm going to send you scribes. I'm going to send you my own disciples. And I'm doing it because I want you to turn from your sin. But let me tell you what you're going to do to them. You're going to persecute some of them. You're going to reject others of them. You're going to follow and beat some of them. And you're going to crucify some of them. And because you do that, God's judgment is going to fall on you. So Jesus is saying to that generation, you keep that up and you're going to be gone. And 30 years later, the nation of Israel was gone. Um, but his message transcends that time frame. It's for us today. And one day we're going to stand before the throne of God and he's going to ask us those questions. How did you live out your life for me? And I just, you know, really don't want him to say, oh, woe to you, Andy, because you knew better. It's not that you failed. You choose. You chose to fail. You, it's a high-handed, I'm not going to do what you want me to do, God. Um, and there's a world of difference. Um, so Jesus Christ desires a people who not only look outwardly holy, but who have been transformed by his grace because they have trusted in him alone for their salvation and by grace through faith they have been justified and declared righteous. And because they have been justified, the spirit continues to work in them and transform them into the very image of the Son of God. That's what God wants for all of us to be transformed into the very image of Jesus Christ, his son. Jesus is, Jesus is warning not only the religious leaders, but all of his warnings are, what does it say to me? What do I need to hear from this that I can apply to my life? Father, I just praise you and thank you for this day. I just thank you for the time that we have to come together to worship you, to hear from your word. And recognize that whatever you share with us, Lord, whatever you tell us, you always provide a place of restoration, of healing, of comfort, of guidance, of grace. So that even when I look at myself and I say, you know, sometimes I'm more concerned about the behaviors of others than I'm my own. I don't have to live with shame and guilt. I can say, thank you, Jesus for revealing another area of my life where I can experience the fullness of your love, the fullness of your grace, and for transformation. And I thank you that I'm never too old to learn a new lesson. 
So I thank you, Jesus. And I ask for your continued guidance and blessing upon each and every person here that we too can experience the fullness of your love, the fullness of your grace, and that we can understand the difference between looking good on the outside and surrendering everything to you from the inside. Yeah, Father. That's these things, and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.